You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. And it's a pleasure to um, engage this listening audience. And uh, John, we have the opportunity to do something that we've had many occasions to do on other forums in other ways and both in privacy and in uh, public arenas. Yes, uh, that is to talk about the Word of God, to talk theology, talk about the, the Lord and the Bible and, and sort of um, do it in a relaxed setting. Um, as as friends, uh, usually we're at a coffee shop talking, but we get to uh, have our conversation with people listening in, and uh, that is enjoyable to us. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't bring uh, you a hot chocolate this uh, today. I brought myself a coffee, so next time I'll bring you a hot chocolate. But uh, we are excited about uh, our new, sort of new program, new to the station, and uh, we uh, hope and pray that uh, everyone listening will enjoy it. Uh, we uh, love to talk about the Lord, and we love to talk about His Word and how much it means uh, to us in practical daily lives. And we also love to dig in and discover things about it and discover uh, the gracious, graciousness of our God. And so that is uh, sort of what we are going to be doing uh, today and in the future as well, Lord willing. You know, John, I can't wait for um, this opportunity uh, to start uh, officially with the opening of the Word of God. But you and I, as you have said on many occasions, have had the opportunity uh, whilst jogging or sitting uh, to engage in discussion of the Word of God. And that's the format that we'll follow here. Uh, it'll be a time where we are engaging in um, intimate discussion concerning God's truth uh, with a view to its practicality, both historically and in modernity. Uh, that's a big word, modernity. <laughs> You're already hitting me up. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Uh, in modern times, how's that? Okay. And uh, we will will engage in that way and uh, prayerfully in um, our time. Others will be brought into a very devotional time uh, uh, that will result in intimacy with God. So, where are we going to start our discussion? I was thinking that we'd start in the book of Ruth. Okay. Let's talk about Ruth. That's exciting. Yes. That's exciting. Uh, uh, You know, it's an interesting book because it is a book that's named after its heroine. Uh, The hero of the book uh, really is uh, a woman who's a foreigner, as it were. Mm -hmm. And um, she's an interesting uh, character who, as a result of what I will suggest, is um, her covenantal fidelity or her faithfulness uh, will be granted entrance into the genealogy or the pedigree of David the king and ultimately and finally Jesus the Messiah. Hmm. So she is, obviously, the book is entitled after her, but she's not the only character in the story. No. And, of course, we're going to see that and and discover uh, God's working uh, in the midst of her life and also in um, the lives of the people that they are involved with. So, Yeah, I, I <clears throat> when you think about this book, 
you do not have a stated author. And so I like to think of the authorship of this book uh, as the real author and the implied author. The real author is unknown, and of course, by implication, uh, it's probably dated to, let's say, the period of David or shortly thereafter during the Solomonic reign. But the implied author is uh, an individual who has a prophetic voice who most likely authoritatively in interprets apparent ambiguous providence. In other words, this author will actually look at events that will appear to the historic reader and to the modern reader to be happenstance, right. circumstance, incidental. But that writer will not only very poetically, very artistically, um, uh, very eloquently depict those events from a human perspective, that author will walk behind those events and show us the theological pointedness of the hand of God. And I think that brings in a very practical point is that this is one of the few books in scripture where God is sort of behind the scenes. Okay, a lot of... works in scripture and books and and letters in scripture, obviously God is heavily involved in everything in life, but this is sort of the life of real people, uh, tragic events and and amazing things that God does, and it sort of is more of an example of how you and I live life. Um, God is not, you know, necessarily speaking out of heavens every Thursday morning to us, you know, maybe he is in your quiet time, but I don't know about (laughs) mine, but... But it's real life. And there, what, what I'm saying is oftentimes there are events and circumstances, circumstances that occur in our life that does not have a, an announcement from God saying this is something from God or this is something, you know, a lesson to learn. We have to sort of look at the events of our life and sort of hopefully interpret through a theological grid or understanding of what God is doing or not doing or the apparent um, actions of God and try to interpret um, what does it all mean. And so the events in the story uh, we can relate to because they don't know what God is doing. Uh, the characters uh, of, of Ruth and, and Naomi and Boaz and the others really don't know what exactly God is doing, though God is working. And that's true to our lives as well. There's often times when we are encountering situations and we have no idea what the Lord is doing. And we know theologically that God is involved in every part of our lives, but sometimes we wonder. And sometimes you wonder, God, are you really here? Are you really a part of my life? Did you forget about me? And I wonder if those thoughts went through the, uh, through the minds of some of the people, especially uh, the, the mother-in-law, Naomi, in the story. I think it would be helpful if, if maybe if I read the first chapter just to sort of get a, set, get a, a flow of what the text says. Absolutely. Okay, so... In Ruth chapter 1, it says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah, Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. 
Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the women, or the woman, that's Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, where she, for she had heard that in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. By the way, Naomi's name means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And the, For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I know we're we're probably not going to cover that much today in that chapter, but just to get a flow of of what was going on and the significance of, of what is going on in her, in her life. We read through those verses in a matter of, you know, a couple of minutes, at least I did, a couple of minutes. Um, but a lot of time passes by in their lives, if, especially if we look at the first five verses, there's at least 10 years that pass by. And we probably want to slow down, back up, and look at what's going on because oftentimes, you know, we, we, are, we live in a microwave society in a fast, fast food and, you know, instant coffee society. Uh, where we want things instantly. But oftentimes there are things and events that play forth in our life that take time to develop and time for for God to orchestrate. And uh, it's easy just to breeze over these verses as if they are a snap of the finger and there there we are. So You know, John, I'm glad you said that because Dr. Gunkel and Dr. Myers and Dr. Garciel uh, once posited the idea that this was a novella from the Italian word uh, from which we derive our English term novel. They looked at this story and saw the 
uh, eloquence of this story, the tragedy of this story, and misunderstood it and misplaced it uh, under the rubric of a novel. But I hardly think that it's a novel. In fact, uh, as you were reading in verse number one, you have a definite time period that is historical. By the way, when you say novella, the, the implication is that it is fictional. Correct. Okay, so we're correcting that because we believe it's not fictional. It actually happened. Yes, there is every evidence within the framework of the book itself. In fact, within just verse number one, you have it's during a specific time, namely during the period of the judges. There's a specific event, namely during a period of famine. There's a specific locative uh, um, situation or location or geographical location, Bethlehem in Judah. There's also another location, Moab, and we know that those are literal places, as it were. Uh, when you get to uh, verse number 22, we know that this is during the season of barley harvest. And so what you have is a misspeak and a misunderstanding by Gunkel, Myers, and Garciel. This is not, in fact, a fallacious story, a fictional story. Uh, this is real life. What's interesting is not only does the book start off by mentioning real places and events. Obviously, the time of the judges, which we'll discuss in a few minutes, was an actual time in the history of, of Israel. Real places, Bethlehem, Moab. But it also ends that way. If you look at the at the end of the book, it ends with the genealogy leading up to David. You know, this Correct. is this is David's what great great great, or is it great great grandmother? And so, obviously, it starts and ends with actual um, heritage or not heritage um, events and historical people that actually actually existed. Um, some scholars actually question whether David existed, but um, late, you know, archaeological findings have obviously discovered that uh, he definitely did exist if you don't hold the Bible to be inspired, but we do, which we do. Absolutely. Anyway, so it starts off with actual events. These are real people. They're not made up. Right. And this is a, a real histor- historical event that happened. I, I also think that it's interesting concerning the intertextuality or the Contextuality, what we'll refer to as its canonicity, its placement within the rule of Scripture, right. within its uh, within uh, the text of Scripture. Uh, if you're looking in the um, um, Christian Bible or the Septuagint, uh, that translation of the Hebrew Bible that is produced by seventy to seventy-two Alexandrian Jews in about two hundred fifty to two hundred BCE or before the Common Era. It's the Greek Old Testament. Absolutely. Uh, what you see is it's placed after the Book of Judges. Um, of course, uh, the believer at rest, Doctor Merrill Unger from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, who passed away in nineteen eighty, he suggests that this particular text is placed where it is in the uh, uh, Septuagintal translation because it's part of a a three-part trilogy, as it were. Uh, He sees the apostate Jonathan, uh, who is the grandson of Moses from Bethlehem. Okay, hold on. on. Let's let's back up a little bit here. (laughs) (laughs) Because what you're saying is, and this, okay, this for our listeners, in our Christian Bible, it's placed after Judges. Correct. And before Samuel. Correct. Because of the relationship with, in one sense, with Bethlehem, Correct. Bethlehem being the birthplace of David, David being the well, the best king other than Jesus that the, that the that the nation has produced. Um, 
But it's also found in other places as well. If you if you look at uh, um, if you look in the Talmud, right. uh, it's placed before the Psalms because the idea is this was a an introduction, as it were, to the sweet psalter of Israel. Right. So David's the main psalm writer, so they place it beforehand. And but also, what's interesting is placed after Proverbs thirty one. Correct. In um, in the uh, biblic- Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, Stut- yes. uh, the Hebrew Masoretic text. And the reason for that is because in uh, Proverbs 31.10, you have what is referred to as the Eshet Hayil, or the noble woman. Uh, uh, and in Ruth chapter number 3, uh, verse number 11, you also have the Eshet Chayil, uh, the excellent woman or the noble woman, and it was thought that if, in fact, Ruth were not that specific woman of nobility or strength or character that was being spoken of in Proverbs 31, she so depicted or demonstrated or manifested the character right. of that woman. So that she's so she's a she, she is an actual illustration. Of the Proverbs, Which a lot of times, you know, ladies leave read Proverbs thirty-one. They say, "Good, good night. I can't fulfill this. I can't. Uh, I, this is an impossible task for me." But, oh, look at the look at Ruth her, as her character, and she's not impossible, but she has because of her dedication and love uh, to Naomi and her Naomi's family. Uh, she is uh, exemplary of that Proverbs thirty-one woman. Yes. But, okay, so we're 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 looking at obviously the placement of. Look of Ruth within. I, I, I kind of like the way that it's placed in my Bible, anyway, <laughs> because it makes sense. Because here's what happens: because he starts off the story, he starts by saying, "It came about in, uh, in the days when the when the judges governed." Correct. Okay. We really, what, what was that time like? Because there's a significance to that statement. You know, the, maybe the average reader may not be familiar with what with what that means when the judges judges govern, but. But that time period was very significant. In fact, if you have just read Judges and then gone to Ruth, you felt like you were going from total darkness to a glimmer of hope in the story of Ruth. And that uh, that law was not lost. And sometimes, in fact, the book of Judges really paints the picture. Uh, the way Judges ends is very significant uh, and very tragic. You have both uh, the apostasy of Israel, but you also have this moral depravity that happens within this nation that's supposed to be a nation for God. And in the midst of, of, of how that book proceeds and ends, um, there, the question is, can there be any hope? Is, is, has everyone turned to the dark side, so to speak? But then you have the book of Ruth and the glimmer of hope and what God is doing behind the scenes um, is, is, is magnificent in the story. But the time of the judges, what was that time like? Because there's some, I think there's a parallels between that time and our time, uh, in my opinion. You know, if you could take periods in the nation of Israel's history— is there, is there a school I can go to to, to say words like you, brother? <laughs> You're killing okay. me. <laughs> I love you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this is, hey, we're friends, right? I know. If you were to take a panoramic view, as it were, of all of the periods of the nation of Israel's history to date, the book of Judges would be one of the darkest hours Hmm. of their existence as a nation. Uh, The book of Judges summates itself through a consistent phrase that appears at various areas throughout the book. Uh, One 
of the times that that phrase is found, as you said, is in the very last verse of the book in chapter 21, verse number 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, what that will look like is a, a darkness not only in the people of God, but many times in the leaders that God had anointed to oversee the people of God. Now, it, it's interesting that, and I, I'm always thinking practicality here. I'm always thinking, okay, this is this is then, right? This is good history. Well, for one thing, okay, this is a very dark time. There's no strong leadership, okay? And everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, okay? Obviously, God's going to answer those two questions, okay? Introducing the strong leader in David, who's going to be a man after his own heart, and showing the heritage by which he came forth, and also introducing the people, as we'll see, within Bethlehem that are faithful to him, that they didn't do what was right in their own eyes. They were still following God. And it's almost as if to say, um, if you ever you ever buy like a diamond for your wife, yes, you go to a jewelry store and you say, I like that little diamond. What do they do with it? They take they take it out and of, they take a magnifying glass. Okay, besides that, oh, oh. <laughs> they they get the 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 darkest black felt, correct? Right? Yes. I don't know if it's felt some fabric, and then they place that little diamond on top of it because, in contrast to that dark background, there's a little diamond that makes it look even better. And the book of Judges and the time of the Judges is that dark felt, so to speak. Yes, it is. You know, well so said. so what you have here is you have a lack of strong leadership. And people doing whatever they feel like doing, and it's sort of in my in my understanding, it seems like even today that's going on today, where you don't have strong spiritual leadership. Um, well, that like we would love to have, and you have people doing whatever they feel like doing. And what's significant about it is that God has not left Himself without some diamonds in the world, in the dark uh, darkness of the world, and oftentimes God places people in those areas and circumstances to stand out uh, all the more better to uh, to testify of his goodness and his grace where the where, where if you look at the world and you look if you look at the news you watch the news you listen to the radio oftentimes it just seems like doom 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 but God is God is still in control well that's why terminology is so important within the biblical framework because what you have on one hand is ethnic Israel. And then what you have on the other hand is the Israel of God or the people of God. And what you're going to see in the book of Judges is in the midst of ethnic Israel, you have the Israel of God or the people of God. But just outside the book, uh, what you're going to see is uh, individuals who are both located within the place that has been given to the nation as a land of promise. And you're going to see individuals outside of this place that are Torah observant, that are uh, consistent with their fidelity to God, their fidelity to their fellow Israelite. And this is going to be summated in what is referred to as chesed, and which is why I would argue from a biblical and academic perspective that this book is not, in fact, a love book. It's a book that's not about love. It is not, in fact, that it does not speak to love in some way, some fashion of sorts. But its subject is far deeper 
far more involving, far more solid than the machinations of what we consider to be quote unquote well, just love. To, just to jump on the, on your point there, and 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 there is there is love. Don't get me wrong, don't get us wrong. There is love in this book. But when you think of people loving nowadays and, and uh, the, the contrast, let's say, with people doing what was right in their own eyes, there's a huge contrast between that and this concept of, of hesed or chesed, if I can get my guttural there, that it is, it is a love that, is, it goes beyond, that uh, it goes beyond uh, any anticipation of receiving anything in return, which we'll get to in future broadcasts, I'm sure. But you have this demonstration of that love. Not found within ethnic Israel necessarily. You have the demonstration. Of, well, we do have in Boaz later on, but primary in Ruth, this demonstration of this kind of this love, this loyalty, this faithfulness that goes beyond the the expectation of the average person. And she's not even part of the ethnic Israel. He, she is she is um, someone that's brought in, so to speak. You know. But let's let's go on and just you know we were talking about the time of the judges, this dark time. And then, of course, what happens? There's a tragic event that happen. Of course, there's a famine in the land, and so you know we can, you know, there's there's um, there's something that that uh, triggers some movement in the the characters of the story. Uh, yeah, let's take this from verse number one, shall we? Uh, verse number one says, "Now it came about in the days when the judges governed." Now, um, there is one school of thought that would suggest that this occurred during the time of Gideon. Uh, Josephus, in his Antiquities, would suggest that in fact this occurred during the period of Samson. Uh, what we do know with specificity from the scripture is that it occurs during the period of judges. What we cannot speak intelligently to is which judge right. it occurs uh, uh, during but we do know that it is during that dark period and, nonetheless. And of course in the, in the time of Gideon, just as a side note they would have had lack of food because of the Midianites, not necessarily because of the lack of rainfall. But that was common, though having times of famine was not an unusual event. And in fact, you know, you, there's previous famines that happened in the in the, uh, the, um, the Promised Land with Abraham and Isaac and all the rest of them. So, um, but this is a time when it's probably significant that famine comes, maybe as a result of the time of the judges, where the nation of Israel is fall, is has ceased following God and decided to follow after other gods. And of course, God decides to. Um, giving consequences of that, sending in foreign nations to conquer them until the point where they got uh, tired of that and say, God, please help us. And then God would raise up judges, which were these military deliverers to deliver them. And, um, and so we don't know which, which time this was, but we just know that it was a dark time. What's significant, though, too, is as you brought them, um, the, 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 the Bethlehem aspect, because they're from Bethlehem. Right. Ba'it Lechem. Ba'it Lechem. The house of bread. House of bread. Right. There's no bread in the house of bread. What do you do about that? You, you know, it's, it's, it's rather interesting because when we consider this idea of a famine, it, there's not this Americanized idea of there's a little something in the cupboard. Right. Uh, there's enough to make it. It may not be as flavorable or as desirable or as plentiful as I want, but there's enough to make it, let's say, until Friday or throughout the month uh, on the bare necessities. Uh, what you're looking at, uh, and I think it's important to define it for our listeners, is a severe shortage of food resulting in violent hunger, starvation, and in time, death. Right. 
it, so so this particular period that's mentioned in the text, a time of famine, is very pressing, oppressing, severe in nature. So why do you think the famine occurred? Well, <laughs> here's my thinking. It, this is during the period of Judges. It is in the city of Bayit Lechem, the house of bread. Uh, this is within the framework of the promised geography. Um, and it seems to me that in keeping with the Deuteronomic blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28 through 30, uh, that is, uh, uh, that uh, records the obedience clause and the disobedience clause and the results therefrom. Namely, if you obey, I am says, I will grant these blessings to you. But if you disobey, I am says, within the framework of his covenant with his people, I will then bring about these curses upon you. And most normally, within the framework of the land of God or amongst the people of God, what you see is things such as famine directly connected or correlated to disobedience. Now, while that's not directly stated within the framework of the text, it is insinuated or inferred by means of its connectivity with the period of the judges and by means of the uh, situation of sorrow and suffering that ensues as a result. So I, I, I agree with you. I'm not going to argue with that, that this is the time of the judges and famine is probably going to ensue because of the disobedience of the nation. But here you have this family, okay, from Bethlehem, house of bread, there's no bread. And they are feeling the effects, though, of the nation's disobedience to God. They're feeling this, 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 they're feeling the effects of that. And so what are they to do about that? Because oftentimes we, you know, we, as human beings, or as as uh, somebody, um, the, what, what's the phrase? The armchair uh, armchair quarterback, the um, person after the fact can look back and say, "Well, they should have done this. They should have done that." You know, but here's this family, this man with a wife and and two kids who has no, they have no bread. What do they do with that? They might not be of guilty. They might not have suffered or, or been guilty themselves. Of, of not following God. It seems like everybody else who's in Bethlehem when they come back is very faithful. Perhaps, and we'll look at that in a second, are they, are they necessarily guilty themselves or is it that they are feeling the effects, the consequences of the nation's sin? You know, John, I appreciate what you're saying, and I'm going to tell you why I appreciate that from several aspects. You and I, uh, some weeks ago, in fact, had a conversation over this concept, as it were, a a concept that resulted in um, my coining of a phrase. Um, uh, You were pointing out that... By the way, if you had Twitter, you should have Twittered it or tweeted it. <laughs> that's 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 true. Which which anyone that knows me knows I'm more 1700s than 2000s. So I I don't necessarily tweet or or whatever that thing is. But the concept is you and I were talking about the characters within the framework of Scripture, and both you and I have been uh, trained to exegete characters and exegete text uh, literally, historically, grammatically, uh, linguistically, 
etc. We've been trained to do that. And so uh, if we are not careful, we will engage, here's the coinage of my term now, uh, as a result of our conversation doing theology and community, um, we will develop a sense that is historical or theological cadaverism. In other words, we will render these people theological or historical cadavers, and we will so cut and splice them, albeit prayerfully accurately, but we will splice them in a way that does not appreciate their history as real human beings with emotions. And so here's my statement. My statement is in verse number six, there's, there's this phrase that is very important in verse number six. Um, uh, in, in verse number six, you have this concept, uh, Picard and uh, the concept of Picard. And the, the, is, me, the word means we, it's translated visited. Visit. Yes. God visiting his people. And what is clearly directly stated in verse number six is inferred in verse number one in the famine. In other words, God who positively visits his people in Bethlehem to restore bread to them in restoration uh, has previously, in verse 1, negatively visited his people with a positive perspective, namely, to so discipline them that they return to their intimacy with God and to their Torah observance. Right. And obviously the word return is repeated throughout this chapter, um, the word is shuv in Hebrew. But my question, though, is looking at from a, a human, I'm, I'm looking at what if Naomi lived today? Or what if I, you and I lived in the time of Naomi? And we experienced this time, this famine, this judgment of God, this curse of God because of disobedience to God's law. God was very clear in Deuteronomy, blessings for, for obedience, curses for disobedience, return, come back to God, so to speak, all right? But let's say you're a family within that time period, and you're facing, you are facing the effects of the famine. Because it seems like the famine uh, covered Bethlehem and the Promised Land, it didn't cover Moab because Moab had bread. Correct. So you're faced with the choice. You know, first of all, the consequences of of Israel's sin affected even those who didn't directly uh, sin themselves. We doesn't, you know, we don't know. Um, well, there's no indication what how they live their lives, uh, Naomi and her husband. But it seems that they have some faith in God. We we get the idea that when Naomi comes back, she has enough faith in God, though she's bitter, she's real with God. She has enough faith in God so that Ruth actually it was converted in one sense. But my question is: is the the consequences of sin? You know, whenever whenever things go bad in life, right, or we think they're going bad or out of control. We always want to say, who's to blame, right? Why is this happening to me? You know, why is this dark period coming into my life? Why am I experiencing these, these setbacks or these, um, these hardships? Sometimes they are directly as a result of your own sin. Sometimes they're the direct result of somebody else's sin. And sometimes, like in the book of Job, it's none of the above, where God allows that to do something, to show your faith off, to do something in your life. And so, and so we, we tend to want to live life to avoid problems. You know, we, we do everything we can to avoid problems. You know, well problems, problems means, our, our, you know, problems aren't good in our, in our, in our vocabulary or in our, our understanding. But the presence of problems doesn't mean the absence of God, Right. And, and so oftentimes God does allow things. And here as this family, 
maybe um, they are uh, maybe they are faithful. Elimelech's, na- Elimelech's name means my God is my God is King. Maybe perhaps they are suffering the consequences as you know. Look at the housing market that happened several years ago. Everybody was affected, even if they themselves didn't do anything wrong. Oftentimes we face the consequences of sins of others, but God still is able to use that. He's still still able to be in control of all that and hopefully to direct us through that. Now, the question is, what are we going to do with that? How do we proceed with that? I think before we talk about how we proceed with that, I think that you've touched on something that's very important because... Even though within the framework of Western civilization, we have this individualistic mentality in the framework of the um, uh, ancient Near East and particularly the Torah community at this time, there was the community concept. There was the national concept. There was the people concept, not simply the individual concept. And so when the nation was chastised, in one sense, God did not overlook the righteousness of the individual, but judgment or discipline fell upon the people of God or the nation of God. And so what you have here is you have this scenario or situation in which there is a national discipline that is consistent with uh, the darkness of the book of Judges. Mind you, during this particular period, you must understand um, uh, the geography and, and the theology that is introduced to us both by the theology and the ethnicity. Namely, um, they are coming into a land in the book of Joshua that's full of the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, etc. Coming into that land, there are deities that are believed to have sovereignty or auspices over that territory. Uh, Two of the main deities would be Baal uh, and Ashtaroth. Baal would be the male deity who was believed to cover the sky and control the weather. The rain. And uh, Ashtaroth was considered to be the female deity that was uh, uh, to control the earth. The sexual encounter of uh, these two deities, it was believed by the previous inhabitants of the land, would result in fertility of the land by way of fruit, grain, etc., and also the animals, uh, their posterity, so that they would have food, as it were, and productivity. As Israel then assimilated, that is, as they engaged in, so as to mix Yahwehism with Baalism, they were then corrected and disciplined by God, so that God would then allow them to see it is not, in fact, the fertility of Baal and Ashtaroth that is resulting in the fertility or the productivity of the land. But I will, in fact, according to Leviticus and the Deuteronomic text, I will cause heaven to be iron over you and the earth to be hard over you so that there'll be no productivity. It is possible and probable, I think, and in keeping with the historicity of the text, that this moment of famine is probably a judgment from God, a discipline, if you will. And I, and I use that word carefully because my use of that word is a theological specific or particular use. Namely, God never engages in disciplinary activity with his people, but that he views it 
with a perspective of restoration and hope, as it were. So he engages in this period of discipline and judgment in order to cause his people to return to him. And then he will, of course, return the Deuteronomic blessings upon them. And so in such a situation, as you stated, what is a family an individual family who is seeking to honor God, who is seeking to serve God and be Torah observant in the midst of this very wild and dark period to do, how are they to perceive the action of God over the nation and engage with God knowing that part of their daily experience of a lack of food, a lack of water, constant hunger that could result in death, What are they to do as walking in fidelity with God, but at the same time experiencing discipline that's that's hard that's that's difficult? Well, it's hard. The question is, and I'll you give a good history of um, of the text and of of the religion of of the Canaanites at the time, and the temptation to adopt those practices, the temptation to adopt the beliefs of the Canaanites. I imagine probably some of them who had uh, Canaanite neighbors when there was no rain, their Canaanite neighbors wouldn't have said, hey, you know, take this god Baal and bury him in your backyard and your, they'll, they'll, a rain will fall. And uh, that's probably part of, of what would have happened as far as them assimilating or adopting these um, Canaanite practices. Um, I think it's interesting is that as, as, a, as a believer, and oftentimes we're faced with the question, is it better to have the stones in the house of bread than the food in Moab. In other words, is it better to eat of the pods out in the other country than what is in my own father's house? And the question, I think, it comes, becomes a very pragmatic question. And oftentimes we live our lives very pragmatically. We live our lives very practically. Uh, if it works, therefore it must be true. And that's, the, I think, is the, the dilemma is, is Israel off, often, and I, I think believers as well, um, try to equate pragmat, pragmatic uh, results with the truth. And there's a temptation there. In fact, you have the temptation when Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And he says, well, you know, your father, if, you know, he, if you're, you're the son of God, then, then command the stone to become bread. Now, he could have, and he could have practically, pragmatically, have fulfilled that and done so. But the stone being turned into bread was not the answer. It was not the way of God for him to proceed. And sometimes, what is because it's practical and pragmatic, and it gets a temporary result, doesn't necessarily mean it's the answer. They're going to go to Moab because there's bread in Moab. Moab's, what, 50 miles away or whatever it is on the, other side, on the eastern side of the of the Dead Sea, they're going to get bread there. But then there's going to be tragedy that happens there. And of course, you have the question, is like, why why does this happen? Why, are they, why, why did her husband and her sons die? They got fed there, but it led to death. And if they would have stayed there, you don't get the indication, the indication from reading the text that that the family uh, was worse off. In fact, you come back, when they come back and they find that Boaz is there, it seems like everybody else is, is doing fine had they stayed. But you don't always know that. When you're faced with that situation, I have kids to feed. I'm going to feed the kids and try, to, and try to be practical about it. That's how I naturally want to think. But does that necessarily mean at the end of the day it's going to lead to 
future life and future uh, blessings? And that's the question as far as uh, that is facing uh, Elimelech and his family um, and deciding to leave the promised land, go to a different land to get bread there rather than stay in the promised land. You know what's interesting when we read these places, John, in Scripture, um, we don't necessarily note the significance of the geography, um, nor do we note the significance of the theology of the geography. This land represents extraordinary compromise. Um, Moab literally means the seed of the Father. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's seen in Genesis nineteen when. At the end of the destruction that occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, Lot uh, uh, lots to the mountain. I say lot. <laughs> you say Lot. He had a lot, I, of, tr- I he had a lot of trouble is what I see. <laughs> <laughs> he runs to the mountains with his daughters, and his daughters are so debased that they're thinking, there's not a man on earth Remaining, They're thinking very pragmatic. Right. Pragmatically, not biblically. Right. Not by faith. And so literally, they sexually compromise through a conversation, agreed upon conversation, their father. And the first son that is produced by the eldest daughter, his name literally means the seed of my father. That's... The nature of this land is compromise, is debasement. However, there's food there. There is provision there. But in the place of promise, there's discipline there. And so I think the practicality that is being given to us through a theological wane of the geography, right, is when the house of God when the place of bread, wherein bread is received by faith and trust in I am and by obedience to his truth, when I'm under discipline or when the people of God are under discipline and God is not practically, pragmatically, instantly meeting my need, do I, in order to save my individual self or that of my family, in order to save my emotions, in order to get my desire met, do I wander into an area that looks good, wherein there is the appearance of bread or grain or, or seed or provision? Do I take my family and wander into compromise because God seems to allow me to undergo a period of national suffering and or discipline? It's, it's interesting because oftentimes in life, when God gives us choices like that where there is a great need or there is a choice to be made of do I stay and follow God though by sight there's nothing there right or do I look over there and say they have bread or as as Lot or Lot as he's conversing with Abraham and looking into the fertile valley of Sodom Gomorrah doesn't know it's going to be Sodom Gomorrah destroyed but he sees a green valley and he says, I'm going to choose a green valley because practically that's where I need, that's going to meet my needs, not knowing the effects of that. Oftentimes we tend to live life in that way and make choices 
based on the immediate benefits that we perceive, not knowing that God often, I'm going to say he's testing us. Will we trust him when there's no, when there's no, when there's no provision in sight? Can we trust him to provide where it, there is no provision in sight? And as Israel, as being the people of God who are to be a light to the world, this was this is not just this is not God just of the land. You know, by the way, in, in the ancient Near East, they believed that their gods were over a particular territory. Yes. Okay. So if you were in Moab, your god was Chemosh, or if you were in Israel, it was Yahweh. If you were in Egypt, it was whoever it was. But the point was, if you went to that territory, that god prevailed. And so the question is, can God, Yahweh, provide our needs? Well, I guess not because there's no bread here. Well, guess what? Chemosh over there may be able to provide because he has bread over there. And that's the test is, can God provide in areas where it seems like there's no provision? Can he provide um, in ways that we haven't thought of before? And as a Christian and as, and as, as the people of God and the temptation that's there to give in, to sort of yield to that temptation of the easy way out, so to speak, there is a lack of testimony that that happens because of that. The testimony comes from the people who have remained and are faithful to the provision of God. God visits his people because some people that were back there repented and decided to stay faithful. Now, what's interesting is this. When they go to Moab... God's power is not limited in just reaching where they're at. In other words, there's times when we make the wrong choices. We decide to go to Moab. We decide to take the practical way, let's say, in a pragmatic way. And that still does not limit God. God doesn't say, oh, you've gone too far for me to reach you. I am so sorry. Uh, come back when you can. It's interesting in the story, though, despite the fact they go to Moab and they, and they um, exit the promised land, he still is able to work through that whole situation. In fact, if they didn't go to Moab, there would be no Ruth because that's where they met. And if there's no Ruth, there is no David. John, you're not saying something as bold and blatant as Romans, not that all things are good. Not that in time all things will become good, but the divine passive, God causes all things to work for good for the individual who loves the Lord. Right. And you can't, and the thing, God is so amazing that you cannot um, mess up his playbook, so to speak. Right. Okay. There, there's, we live life as by faith as much as we can. Sometimes we live faith, uh, life by, by, by sight. We make choices. And oftentimes we don't know the effects of those choices. But God is so powerful and so intimate in and orchestrating our life that no matter which way we go, he is always able to get his will done. I think it's important to remember that the people of God are people of the ear not people of the eye. Mm. We are to be governed by the truths of God's word that have come into our heart through hearing, not the circumstances which we believe that we see, albeit most often we see them inaccurately. To further that statement, 
as one particular author said, we are not to see as believers this world with our eyes, but to see this world through our eyes by faith. In other words, it is biblical truth that governs the step of the believer. However, if in fact the believer missteps, and by the way, since Genesis 3, we've all been misstepping, right? Yes. But God's reach is not stifled, it's not limited, it's not strangled when we misstep. Because it's impossible for us, through our worst step, to step out of the sovereignty of God. No. Now, what's interesting is that when we read this text, we're going to this in, into the story again, and Naomi is going to lose her husband. Mm. Okay, they're going to go to, to Moab. We don't know how long they're there before he dies. We don't know how old he is, if he dies of natural causes or whatever. He dies. His kids, or her kids, uh, the children, Machlan and Kilian, Kilian, which the names names mean um, um, sickly and and pining away. They don't have great names, but they (laughs) die as well. Okay. Yes. But they're there for ten years. So here's so you have the dad die, the sons get married, they they live in Moab for ten years, and then they die. So you have a lot of tragedy within the first five verses of this book, and you got to wonder. And I, I'm wondering if if, if if you if when tragedy happens, you ask the question, where is God? Why did God allow this to happen? And I got to wonder if Naomi is not asking that question. Why am I going through this? Why? Where is God in all this? God, we believe in you. We trust in you. But I have lost my husband. I have lost my children. I am destitute. And sometimes, again, with choices or not, it maybe has nothing to do with their choices. Maybe it was still part of God's plan that they decided, that God decided to take, take them away. But we don't know that. We don't see behind the scenes. We don't know what God is thinking as he's allowing things to happen. But you've got to wonder, that question did not cross her mind. Why? Where and where is God when this happens? You have opened a biblical, theological, Pandoric box. We have to revisit that next week before we're done with today's broadcast. Did I bring up that question at the wrong time? No, I think it's a wonderful question. I I would like to think that that our audience is somewhat left in the the conundrum that you and I are left in when we have this uh, excitement that is building as we engage in our regular times in the text and in prayer with God. But as you and I sit here, John, there is the reality of people who are not where they want to be in life. Mm. Bread is scarce. Bread in a loving husband or a loving wife. Bread in a job that pays enough instead of going to a job that'll pay more than enough but it's route with compromise, with sin. How do we speak to that person? Mm. I think we speak to that person in this way. Going outside of the land of faith, the place of trust, is not God's way. 
it's always going to have repercussions and ramifications that are more negative. You need to realize that your God will pacad. He will visit you not only in good, but I will tell you what most preachers will not. He will also visit you in discipline. But the God who visits you in discipline, should you choose to go outside of his word and his truth, will not lose you to his discipline. Mm. He will always handle you in a way that has the sensitive touch of restoration involved in it. So if you're without the person that you want to be with, if you're without the job that you want to work in, if your paycheck has left you without bread, if your situation has you in want and wondering, stay in the place where the presence of God is, with the people of God and the community of God. And what you will find is in time, when God has righted your heart, he will write your circumstances and the place that he's chosen for your life to be. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth. <laughs>